And they were so strong that one single vampire could suck the life out of an entire planet. One single vampire could suck the life out of an entire planet? Yes. Rubbish. Well, he wasn't a scientist. There are other ways of looking at life, you know. Anyway, according to the story... Direction point! Direction point! A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Doctor Who novelizations put out by Target Books from 1973 onward in publication order. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who podcast network. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. We are now up to 1982. Doctor Who and the State of Decay is the very first Target novelization of 1982. It's also the very first novelization from season 18, the very first novelization of the John Nathan Turner era, which will last for most of the rest of the life of this podcast, and also the first novelization to feature Adric, based on the very first TV production starring Matthew Waterhouse, although in story terms it is not the first aired story to feature Matthew Waterhouse, which is not coming up for quite some time. This episode is honorarily hosted by Gary Lineker, who was just done very, very dirty by the BBC a few days ago for daring to provide some very necessary commentary on Twitter about some absolutely barbaric policies put forth by the likes of Rishi Sunak and Suella Braverman. But, of course, you don't come to this show for political commentary. Gary, if you ever want to guest host this show, you are more than welcome. In terms of show notes, the Anchor identity of Spotify is being wound down. As of this week, the old Anchor platform is now known as Spotify for Podcasters. That will eventually result in a change to the show URL, but for now, the anchor.fm slash Lit address does work. It will just redirect you to Spotify for podcasters. On a side note, when I was flying out to Los Angeles for Gallifrey 1 a couple of weeks ago, the Seatback Entertainment did have a whole bunch of Spotify podcasts. However, your favorite Doctor Who targets podcast and publication order was not on the Spotify network on the airplane. Although now that Anchor is being rolled into Spotify, hope springs eternal that your boy Jason might be found on airplane seatback entertainment consoles the world over. Last week, during our bonus episode, you heard from Jason Davis, and he was talking about Harlan Ellison and how the Harlan Ellison introduction came to be in the pinnacle reprints of ten different Target novelizations. I have an interesting postscript to that story. This week I received in the mail a copy of one of Jason Davis's compilations of Harlan's work, This book needs no introduction by Harlan Ellison. It is a compilation of introductions written by Harlan for various properties, including Doctor Who. What I noticed most interestingly is that there is a line in the original manuscript by Harlan, which is what Jason put in the collection, that did not appear in the pinnacle. And it is a very pointed political reference to Anita Bryant, who was a pretty pernicious anti-gay rights activist in the 1970s. 
I can understand why that was taken out of the Pinnacle version. It is a little bit dated as Anita Bryant no longer has the cultural footprint these days. Unfortunately, other people have taken her place. And even at the time, in a line of uh, books primarily aimed at children, I'm not quite sure how much I would have understood the Anita Bryant reference when I was 11 years old. That being said, I am glad that the unexpurgated copy of the introduction is now available for everybody, and not just the slightly shorter version in the Pinnacle books. I did do a pretty careful paragraph-by-paragraph comparison of the two. That was the only major change that I found. If Jason Davis is aware of any others, or if you are aware of any others, please let me know. This week, after we've already talked about some pretty intense political topics, I am happy to announce that my guest this week is one of the nicest and friendliest people that's ever been on this show. Denise Sutton from Norway is back for a second trip on Doctor Who Literature. And she and I are going to have a grand old time talking about State of Decay and Season 18 and Doctor Who in general and Jodie Whittaker and Power of the Doctor. And of course, you know there's going to be a game of 20 questions. How will Denise do? Let's get to it. The vervoids are probably the best dirty joke in Doctor Who. They're hermaphroditic plants. A lot of plants are. So there you go. That's it's based on science. No, they'll ship anything. They're probably eleven and handle shippers out there. You just have to drill a hole where his mouth is, and you're all set. You know he needs the room. I've seen it in pictures. I'm not saying you're not a fan. I'm saying you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Doctor Who gives a a drunken Doctor Who podcast for the end times. Denise, welcome back to Doctor Who Literature. It's been a minute since the last time that you were here. It's been more than a minute, but thank you very much for having me back again. I think the last time you were here, we were discussing the John Pertwee era, the mutants. Is that correct? That's right. Yes, that was the one. And we are talking about a very different era today, but before we talk about because you are the very first guest who's going to be discussing the JNT era on my show. This is the first wow. state of decay. January 1982 is the first novelization of a JNT story. I did not know that. Well, I hadn't consciously thought about it. I suppose I would have known it had I thought about it. But yes, so a big honor as uh, season 18. I know it's got its detractors, but I'm a huge fan. I didn't come in with season 18. I came in with season 20. But season 20 is kind of like an extension of season 18 because it's the same producer, some of the same companions. It's got the same title sequence. It's got the same incidental music and the same composers. So this is my default era of the show. Even after 40 years, when I think about Doctor Who, this is the kind of style that I think about. The season 18 through 21 Credits, music, producer, look, feel. I'm completely with you there. It's um, it's very much my comfort zone. I'm all, I think, you know, I love the entire era of Doctor Who. All 60 years of it has got something to love. But uh, there's something very special on my rewatches. When I get back to this era, that's like, it's absolutely kernel of it all for me because that's when I really really became a big fan 
So we will come back and talk about Season 18 and State of Decay in a bit, but I want to catch us up on current events first, because we are both regulars on Trap 1, but we don't often overlap and we're not always in the same episode. So bring us up to date. What have been your last few Trap 1 appearances? Okay, well, um, my last one was um, on the audio adventures. So did that a couple of months ago. And that was our Christmas episode, actually. So, you know, because it's stories from the annuals. It was the time that people got Doctor Who annuals for Christmas. So we made it our Christmas episode and that was lots of fun. What about you? You, you were a little bit more prolific than I am. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because of my famous podcast backlog. I actually just heard your Christmas Trap 1 episode last week. That's how far behind I am. So I just heard that episode as if it's brand new. Well, I mean, we absolutely love doing those stories. I know it's a little bit niche, perhaps, because uh, very few people will have heard these tales. But it's a whole other dimension, and we love doing them, and there's so much love for that aspect of the show it was something a little bit special and extra for kids for Doctor Who to have these stories and now they're being brought back to life and narrated by doctors and companions and other people from the show it's brilliant to be able to revisit them and uh, they've been immortalized now and you actually had our mutual friend, Cy Hart, do a live reading of one of the stories in the last episode, if memory serves me right. That's right. Yes, he's a very talented reader, and it was great to hear him read a story that hadn't made it to the audio version. Speaking of backlogs, I've been in the middle of a Trap One backlog. I have ideas for episodes. I have panels for episodes, but getting everybody together in the same room at the same time has been a bit of a challenge. So I got an episode out about the Fires of Pompeii novelization. That came out several months after the book. I am working right now on doing a Jody retrospective, which I believe he will be a panelist for, and I'm also working on getting out an episode about the Series 2 Blu-ray. Top 10 Jody moments, folks. Yes, the Series 2 Blu-ray. Oh, I've just finished that. Isn't it wonderful? It has been a delight to work through that Blu-ray, but we have three different panelists in three different countries apart from myself, so getting everybody in the same room is a bit of a coordination. That episode will come out very soon, hopefully before the Series 9 Blu-ray, which is the next disc out, and that's coming out, I think, (laughs) next week. Yeah, and I think um, I think I'm up for that one as well. So I'm going to have to pause my heart noise and dive into some Pertwees. It is always a pleasure to dive into the Pertwee era, as we discussed last time when we were talking about the mutants. Which, by the way, the mutants will be part of that new box set, so you'll be able to discuss the mutants on two different podcasts in back-to-back years. Hmm. I wonder if they'll do a behind the sofa on it. That would be. Uh... An interesting thing to see what they have to say about it all. I'm sure they will. One of the disappointments for the season two box set is they did not have behind the sofas for every single story. And that's possibly because those stories are so old, they can't get enough of a panel together. But hopefully for season nine, they have everybody together. 
hopefully. I would hope so. It's it's always lovely to see John Levine, isn't it, and Richard Franklin and uh, Katie, of course. You know, she's the linchpin of it all. I have met all of them in person. And I really love the way people like Sophie Aldred are just diving in, you know, and Janet Fielding and Wendy Padbury. Yeah, they really love watching stories from other eras and discussing them at length, especially Janet Fielding. So those are always fun to watch. Those are always a highlight of any given box set. Yes, yeah, always good to see her. And now she's actually been back in the show as well in Power of the Daleks, Power of the Doctor, sorry. Wow, you know, she's she's not going anywhere, is she? I saw the footage of her um, driving around in a Dalek at Galley. You know, I was at Galley, but I did not see that footage because the con is so big that you can't possibly see everything. So I must have managed to entirely miss that. <laughs> well, she she looked like she was having a whale of a time and she was bearing down on Peter Davison with some intent, I would say. That does not surprise me in the slightest. <laughs> She's got beef, hasn't she, with him? <laughs> <laughs> in a in a good way they they seem to enjoy squabbling or uh, bickering with one another exactly they are the um patrick troughton and john pertwee of their time minus the uh water pistols uh fighting each other with water guns throughout the entire convention and during panels and on stage not quite to that level of aggression but yet yet definitely a good time is had by all so at Galley, we had pretty much everybody who was involved in Power of the Doctor. You had Chris Chibnall, you had Jodie Whittaker, you had the director of that story, Jamie Magnus Stone. Janet was there, Sophie was there, a lot of the behind-the-scenes team was there. So I was on the Trap One Power of the Doctor's Roundup episode, but I don't think you and I have talked what did you think of that episode? What was your take on the very last hour and a half of the Jody era? I really loved it. Um, I think I've watched it three times now and um, very, very strong story. There were a few annoying little continuity errors, which I think a lot of people picked up on. But yeah, absolutely. Give a show its head and let it show what it really, really, really can do. I mean, um, Jodie's performance, Mandip Gill's performance, the master as Rasputin, um, humour, bringing back lots of wonderful old companions, hitting a lot of the right notes. I have no complaints. We are lucky, lucky people to have a show like Doctor Who in our lives. One of the great things at Galley is they did a live audio commentary for the episode. So it was great having Chris Chibnall explaining where all the Easter eggs came from. Like, he put as many references to Legopolis and other regeneration stories as he could. I mean, he is just a tremendous fan. You can see it from the way that he interacted with others at Galley. He's just a fan of the show, first and foremost, even before he was the showrunner. So he went out of his way to put in these nice little goodies for us in power and it helps that Sacha Dewan was giving such an intense performance playing like five different versions of the master in the same episode that's terrific well I mean he is such a 
passionate actor, isn't he? He's impresses me a great deal every time I see him in anything. He's he's really brilliant, and it. I mean, he plays a villain brilliantly, but you sort of wish he was playing <laughs> playing a good guy sometimes as well. I mean, he played uh, Waris Hussein, of course, in An Adventure in Time and Space, and. He's just got such a presence and such a sort of animal magnetism to him. He's a pleasure to watch. I met him very briefly at Galley last year, early 2022, because I did the guest reception at Galley. That's where you get five minutes each with like nine different guests at your table. So the guest comes over and talks to you and your four other guests, and then they move on to the next table five minutes later. So during his five minutes with our small group, Sacha asked us what we thought was going to happen during Power of the Doctor. So I gave him my theory, which ended up being a thousand percent incorrect. But it was a, it was a theory, and I'm happy that I thought of it. So he liked my theory, he fist-bumped me, and then he asked the table, how would you like it if the Doctor regenerated into me? And what none of us knew is that he was literally spoiling the episode for us <laughs> ten months early. <laughs> That's literally what happened, but he made it sound as if it was, you know, a funny suggestion or a joke. And there it was. The doctor literally regenerates into him. At least for a time. I mean, that was a powerful thing. Yeah. And poor um poor Yaz's face having to watch that. That was uh Yeah, that was a moment. Bit of Doctor Who history being written right there. And the moment that absolutely ruined me was seeing William Russell come back for the first time in decades. And even though it was only a six-word cameo, that was just absolutely stupendous. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he's still around. He's one of the precious people on this planet that uh, you want to wrap in bubble wrap and take very good care of and make sure they always have a hot drink and... uh, but yes, wonderful to see him back. Of course, we could have had him back in season 20 had the timing worked out. He would have been playing the Brigadier's role in Modern Undead. But unfortunately, we had to wait 30 or 40 more years for him to come back on the mothership. But we will always have him now for that uh, six-word cameo in Power of the Doctor. Yes, and wasn't it a world record or something that played the same character for the longest time or, you know, the longest appear- longest gap between two appearances of the same character in a television show. You know, I think you're right. I think actually, I think the Guinness Book of World Records was contacting. I think they actually did an entry for him. Yeah, the longest gap between appearances on the same show. <laughs> well, speaking of season 20, that's a good way of segueing back into our conversation about season 18. So... What was the first season 18 story that you saw? When did you see it? And what about this particular season appeals to you so much? Okay, well, I mean, I was 11 years old. And so, and Doctor Who had been much must-see TV in my house for as long as I could remember. So the first episode I saw was episode one of the leisure hive and the first time i saw it was on its broadcast date but it all went a little bit wrong after that for season 18 and me i think we talked about this 
last time I was with you, Jason, where um, there was a show on another channel called Buck Rogers in the 25th Century. Yes. And that had a pretty lady in it. So my brother and my dad wanted to watch the show with the pretty lady in it. So, uh, And they said, oh, well, Doctor Who's not as good as it used to be anyway. And, you know, we're going to watch this. And obviously the two blokes outvoted the two women in the household. And my mum was off making dinner anyway at that time of day. So I think we saw all of the Leisure Hive and then we got into Megloss. But the trouble with Megloss was, you know, studio-bound sort of forest scene. It looked like Creature from the Pit. And Chris and my dad were saying, oh, you've seen this one before. And I thought, well, maybe you're right. Maybe this is like, it does look a bit familiar. So they turned over. And next thing I knew, it was Warrior's Gate. That's when I came back into it, but uh, very much absorbed in it all from there until Legopolis. So you're talking about Buck Rogers. Obviously, you're talking about Erin Gray, who, yes, she made a huge splash at the time. She's a terrific character in that series. But at the same time, all due respect to Erin Gray, if you stay with Doctor Who, you've got Lala Ward for most of the part of the season that you miss. That's a really difficult choice to have to make. I think my loyalty has to go with Lala Ward. Mine too, in a heartbeat. It's when I rewatch her se- her seasons, I realize that, you know, I wanted to be her when I grew up. I mean, I'm not sort of tall and posh or anything. So, <laughs> so that was never going to happen. But uh, yeah, um, everything about her is admirable. But she was probably a little bit classy for my dad. Rest his soul. <laughs> and she wasn't wearing the same uh, skin-tight uniform that Erin Gray mm. was wearing on the Buck Rogers series. She had a more uh, mature d- dress sense, perhaps. Yeah, I think my dad, he was more into sort of people like Debbie Harry and people like that rather than uh, your classier birds, as they say in the UK. But... Uh, so, yes, I mean, Lala Ward wins it hands down for me and most other right-thinking people, I would say, but this beautiful young American lady appealed to my nine-year-old brother and to my dad. So what can we do? As a native New Yorker, I will never say anything bad about Debbie Harry. She's one of our people. But uh, when did you first get to see State of Decay, then, if you missed it on the original airing in favor of Buck Rogers? Um, it was. It took a while. I think it was early 90s before I finally got to see it when they were having the um, repeats on the cable channel UK Gold. And uh, I didn't get to see it when they were broadcasting it then either, ironically enough, because I think me and my partner at the time had agreed to go to the movies at that time. So we set the video for it. <laughs> because we were taping them all <laughs> at that point as well, because he was a fan as well. So um, so we set the video, and off it went, and we went and watched whatever movie we watched, and uh, watched it when, at some point after we came back, I guess. 
So, you know, 12 years later or something. I guess it's pretty telling that you can remember what you videotaped when you went to the theater, but you can't remember what you went to the theater and missed State of Decay for. Well, yes. Um, I have. I know because it was when I was living near Brighton on the south coast of England. And um, so I know it was the... Uh, it was the ABC cinema in Brighton, just by the seafront, but which can be seen in the movie Quadrophenia. The mods have a riot past that cinema, but uh, I don't know what we were watching. No clue whatsoever. Probably not nearly as good as State of Decay, I would guess. <laughs> That's a whole other discussion, isn't it? Um, well, if I couldn't, if I can't even remember what movie it was, I mean, I think went to the movies quite a lot at that time, but uh, can't remember what specific movie it was that day. Then probably not. So, where does State of Decay rank in your pantheon of the great classic series Doctor Who's? It's not really up there for me. I mean, it's a fun story. It gets a lot of things right. The novelization is very strong, but uh, it's got some problematic performances for me. And um, nah, it's it's not um, it's not one of the stories where you think I am in the mood to watch this story tonight, so I'm going to sit down and put it on. It's you know, there are other stories in season 18 that would be that, absolutely, but not, not State of Decay. Out of curiosity, what are the performances that you find problematic? Um, it's the character Tarak, mainly. I mean, I know he dies as a hero when he's trying to fight Zargo and Camilla with Romana, but his early scenes in the rebel base when he's talking about the wasting it kind of goes very monty python for me he he's a you know he stares right into the camera like he's michael palin and he's about to say it's and it just it just tips a little too far it's a little bit silly i think he finds his he finds his level later on but you know, the early dialogue, it's just like, nah, don't do that. Have another take. But he didn't. That was how they wanted it to be, apparently. The wasting is the wasting. <sighs> it's funny that you mentioned Tarak. He is played by Paul Bettany's father. And Paul Bettany is also my Brooklyn neighbor. Although, of course, Paul Bettany has mm -hmm. no idea who I am but I guess everything comes back to people who live in New York. So mm. setting aside his character, this is also, it is not the first episode to feature Matthew Waterhouse, but it was the first story produced with Matthew Waterhouse in it. And it is also mm. because this is the first season 18 novelization. This is the first novelization to have Adric in it. I think most of us in fandom have mixed feelings on that subject. Where do you sit in terms of Adric? Is he the best of the best? Is he the worst of the worst? Or is he somewhere in the middle? Well, for me, um, I and people who know me well know this, I did have a bit of a crush on him. 
when I was a little girl, when I was sort of 12, 13, 14. I, I thought he was very cute and I kind of liked androgynous boys and, of course, he was one of those. I could see that, you know, his acting wasn't great and I could see that he was dealt a pretty shoddy hand in terms of character development and what he had to do in a lot of his stories, you know, and I could understand fully why he was killed off in the end. But, uh, yeah, he was a very young man. I mean, when you look at Watch State of Decay now, that is a child. We're looking at a little boy acting there. And the way he's been vilified and slagged off over the years. And, you know, these days he, he'd still be at school. He'd be, you know, it makes no sense to me that he has had the hatred chucked at him that he has had. I have a real problem with the negative stories about him. Because if you look at it from his point of view, he is an 18-year-old novice who had only one acting role under his belt before getting cast in a pretty major Absolutely. role on this show. Why is he made out to be the bad guy in all the stories? Absolutely. I, mean, I was going to say, shouldn't have all the other grown professionals on the show be responsible for shepherding him? Yeah, I mean... Okay, obviously, Lala Ward and Tom Baker had problems at the, of their own at the time. They were probably pretty self-absorbed, all things considered. Um, yeah, but he could have been taken better care of, that is for sure. And I would hope that juveniles are better taken care of these days. Yeah, if he didn't have a concept of how to behave on set. Again, he's an 18-year-old, basically a kid who would have no idea. It's up to his co-stars and the production team to help him adjust and make him feel welcome. And instead, he was ostracized pretty quickly. And I have to imagine that going to work could not have been the most pleasant experience for him. Adding on to the fact that nobody quite knew how to write for his character, especially once season 19 comes along. So in this story, this is pretty clear in the novelization too, because Terrence is the very first person who writes an Adric story and doesn't quite know what to do. And the character brief isn't great. So he's an antagonist in the story, even more so in the novelization. So maybe not the best way to launch the character with the story where he's almost the bad guy up until the last couple of minutes. Yeah, I mean, he gets to have a few little adventures, doesn't he? He's sort of, uh, there's the big question mark of um, how on earth he knows what cheese is. I mean, I'm, my <laughs> mind is boggling to think of what on earth they were actually milking on Al's area, so I'm not sure I want to know. But, uh, you know, but yes, it was supposed to be, he was supposed to be an intergalactic artful dodger or something wasn't he and uh, that wasn't a good fit for Matthew Waterhouse's character or and it wasn't really something that they could really use much you know he can nick the occasional component when it comes in handy or pick a lock or something like that but uh, yeah that doesn't sit well with the whole mathematical genius strange little boy persona 
and it's interesting watching and reading out of order because this is day one for him. There's no mention at all of the mathematical genius. That doesn't come until full circle. And this is pretty much the only story where he's the artful dodger. I mean, obviously in full circle, he's being trained as one, but then it never comes up again for the entire rest of his tenure. So if you only know Matthew Waterhouse or Adric from this book and this story, you're not getting the full picture. No, absolutely not. Um, you're not even quite sure where he came from because in this book, the opening scene of State of Decay, they're talking about e-space and they're saying, what if there aren't any planets here? Whereas, of course, the actual line is any other planets here because they've already been to Alzarius. And I'm not sure if it's ever actually made clear whether Pterodon is also in e-space or whether that's in in-space. So... Yeah, it's like he come in and he stowed away, but did he come through the CVE with them? No, he didn't. But that isn't made clear in the uh, in the novel at all. And there is the dialogue reference in the part four material to one of his family having died for the Doctor and Romana already, mm -hmm. but there's no explanation of Varsh or Alzarius. And in his defense, Terence probably did not know that. That was probably a line put in by the script editor. And Terence is just copying it out for the novelization. But Terence doesn't seem to have had enough information to flesh it out for sure. It does sit there kind of oddly. Well, I mean, it is one of his wonderful but standard 125-page long novelizations so you don't tend to expect too many extra flourishes or unnecessary backstory or anything like that and it was quite quite a usual trope wasn't it for um a doctor who companion to have lost a family member or been orphaned or something along the way before they meet the doctor so or or during their first adventure together it becomes kind of the recurring theme of season mm. 18 because in the story after this, you say goodbye to Romana and K-9. In the story after that, Nissa becomes orphaned on screen. In the story after that, Tegan, not necessarily orphaned, but Tegan's Auntie Vanessa is killed on screen. And of course, Annie Vanessa it comes back to be referenced again in power of the doctor. And the, I'll just tell you, Chris Chibnall told this funny story at Galley during the live audio commentary for power. After the Sacha master starts taunting Tegan about Auntie Vanessa, Chibnall says that he got a text message from Russell T. Davies saying, you did not just mention Auntie Vanessa in prime time on the BBC. <laughs> I think Russell T. Davies was absolutely in awe of what Chris Chibnall did right there. And of course, to be honest, so was I. I was so happy to have Auntie Vanessa mentioned again 40 years later. Well, once seen, never forgotten. Everybody should have an Auntie Vanessa, I would think. Absolutely. Well, I've got an Auntie Betty who fills much the same role in my life. But... I have no aunts left the last one passed away late in 2022 so i never had an auntie vanessa and now i never will but as far as i'm concerned auntie vanessa from legopolis is my 
auntie. So we're all good there. Yeah, I'll be your auntie. I can be your auntie then. Yeah. I think we're a little too close in age, but I will, I will accept that. <laughs> yes, I've got a few honorary um, nephews who, uh, if any of my friends' kids become Doctor Who fans, then they become also my nephew or niece by default. It's a rule. <laughs> so when we were talking about the novelization, you surprised me because you have something that I don't have. It's a little known fact that Terence wrote two novelizations of State of Decay. There's the one that I'm holding up now, which you can't see because my webcam isn't working, but it's the Andrew Skilleter cover for the uh, 1983 reprint of the 1982 novelization. But you have the abridged audio-only Terrence Dix novelization of State of Decay read by Tom Baker and released only on audio cassette. I do. <laughs> I can't remember why. Well, I can't remember where I bought it from. I acquired it at some point in the 1980s, probably. But yes, I've got it. And since I've recently been sorting myself out a little office in this house I moved into last year, I found my audio tapes, I found my Sony Walkman, and I gave it a listen. And um, yeah, it's um, like you say, it is very abridged. And it's Tom Baker reading the whole thing. And I think he's quite enjoying it. Um, a lot of the story is gone. I think the Doctor has more of a lead role in it. Romana's role is a bit diminished. Um, the Doctor already knows about bow ships and giant vampires. So they don't have to go back to the TARDIS and look at uh, magnetic card readers or anything like that. And the Constantinal shift becomes Chinese whispers for the purposes of the audio tape. Wow. But I think the best thing is uh, listening to him having a go at some of Emrys. Is it Emrys James? Yep. Emrys James's lines as Orcon. He's absolutely relishing, you know, welcome to my domain and all of that. He's really enjoying having a go at the other over-the-top characters' lines in it. So lots of fun to listen to. It's very short, but uh, I had a quick look to see if it was on Audible or anything. I suppose somebody must have put it on YouTube somewhere. But, uh, yeah, it was nice to listen to that again. I always get confused because you have Emrys James in this story, but you also have Emrys Jones in The Mind Robber. So... I always have to try and remember which one is which so I don't get the names wrong. I probably have said the wrong Emrys somewhere in this podcast. <laughs> so if I did, I apologize to everybody, <laughs> but I think it's an understandable mistake. It's an unusual first name. But, uh, yes, they do crop up in the theatrical world. What's it like hearing Tom Baker perform as Canine or perform as Adric? Because, again, I've never heard this version, so I'm but listening to an hour or two of Tom Baker performing has to be a great experience. Yes. I mean, I don't think it's even an hour long, to be honest with you. I think it comes in a little bit less than that. But, yeah, he, um, he does a sort of childhood innocence kind of tone and inflection. And uh, canine, he's sort of factual but still very much him it's 
he doesn't go overboard. He's not he's not doing an impression. He's just reading the lines how he would have read them if he was playing that character, I think. So now turning to the paperback novelization, when would you have read this one for the first time, the full-length Terrence version? I bought it in, according to, I've got two copies of this, because uh, my old one, which I bought in January 1982 and is a first edition, um, is a bit battered. I think the first time I would have read it was on the bus on the way home from school, having bought that in the London Street Bookshop on my way home from <laughs> from school one day. So, I, I mean... I got a new, newly published novelization, and I would read it either on the bus or walking down the street because I couldn't wait to open it. I couldn't wait to start. So that was would would be when I first read it, and I would have finished it as soon as I could after getting home from school. Oh wow! I know for me, this is one that I read multiple times in the mid 1980s and it was one of my favorites so reading it now was slightly disappointing because it was not as complex as the last terence that i read which was unearthly child the novelization immediately before this one and i'll walk through my feelings on that in the audio essay that follows this interview but comparing the two which did you prefer the abridged audio version or the full-length book well, I say full length advisedly. It's only 119 pages of text, but it's a little bit longer than the audio. Well, the novelization, the paperback, yes, very definitely. Um, I mean, for me, being a kid in the age before you could get a videotape or a DVD of these shows, the novel, the novelization was it. You know, that was as good as a definitive version as you were going to get as far as I knew at the time. So they were kind of like sacred te texts to me, really. And so, so yeah. And I did read it a lot. And reading it again this weekend, um, just past, it's, it struck me that particularly the fight scene when they're, when they're invading the tower at the end, very, very well written, very gripping, very fast paced. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what's happening. I mean, this was his idea, wasn't it? This was a Terence Dix script that he'd had for a long time, but it got held back because the BBC were doing a dramatization of Dracula and they didn't want to have another vampire related story at the same time. So it was one that had been in the pipeline for a long time before it was finally made. And that, of course, led to the chain of events that gave us Horror of Fang Rock, which I like even better than State of Decay. So the BBC inadvertently did us a good service there. Otherwise, Fang Rock might never have existed. I do like Fang Rock, yes. That is a lovely atmospheric story, although if David's watching it with me, then he always gives me grief about the route and it's like, you know... <laughs> Green jelly, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, horror of Fang Rock is not about the rudin. It's about the acting and the human characters in the lighthouse turning on each other and, and fighting, and the doctor conspicuously failing to save 
any of them. The dialogue in that story is just so intense where State of Decay, you have a lot of simple or one-dimensional characters. It doesn't quite reach the heights of Fang Rock, but I think the production of State of Decay is gorgeous because you have Peter Moffat's first time out as director, you have Peter Howell's score, you have choreography. So I think State of Decay is amazing to look at and it doesn't have any effect quite as poorly dated as the uh, yacht crash or the Rutan climbing up the side of the lighthouse. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot to be said for like a painted rubber glove shoving, being shoved up through some polystyrene and a slightly dodgy looking rocket. But uh, <laughs> I mean, it was what it was at the time and we knew what they were trying to achieve. Jim Sangster had made a very good point the last time he was on this show about how it's almost a stage play. When you go to a theater, you're, you accept that a painted backdrop is a sky or that, uh, you know, two stools next to each other in a steering wheel represents a car. You have to let your imagination do a little bit of the work for you when you're watching a Doctor Who, especially an old one made on a micro budget in a small studio. Yeah, of course. I mean, we we accepted this at the time and we see it now and some of some of the effects amaze us and some of them don't really very much but i'm somebody who still gets impressed by the winged monkeys in wizard of oz so my standards aren't very high <laughs> you know you see somebody in a modern movie walking through a gorgeous incredible massive set and you realize it's all just green screen and none of this actually really exists not one lick of paint has gone into creating this set and it's just it takes a little bit away from it i think when when it was all old school and manual and painted and try not to let the strings show too much and now you have the volume you have one of the volumes in california where netflix or disney plus make their shows and now you have one in the uk where you may be getting some Doctor Who's made in the volume. Yeah, I mean, for me, nothing beats a location shoot or a good practical effect, but I, I guess you and I may be dinosaurs compared to the current variety of TV producer who likes to have everything digital by green screen. I, I can understand why they do it. You use the technology that's available to you at the time, and why wouldn't you? Um, I don't think I'm a Luddite, but I just... And I, you know, some beautiful things are created, aren't they? I mean, but yeah, I, I don't think we can be too harsh on on the old effects. Some of them, they could have worked harder, but I think they usually did the best with what they had. Nobody set out to make bad work, did they, at any time, so... And especially season 18 is a 28-week season. So the production team is in overdrive trying to put out a story every week for seven months. And then you have scenes set on Earth. You have scenes set on Argolis. You have scenes set on Tigala. You have scenes set on Zalvatora. You have scenes set on Alzarius. You have scenes set on this unnamed planet. You have scenes set on Troc. And you have scenes set on Legopolis. That's eight different planets just being produced for this one season alone, not to mention your spaceships and your banqueting halls and, and, and your gateways. And your warrior's gates, yeah. I mean, well, there, they really, 
they really played a blinder with Warrior's Gate, didn't they? I mean, it was absolutely beautiful, absolutely stunning. And the idea that, yes, you can clearly see that Tom Baker is walking through a photograph there, but that's incredible, someone walking through a photograph. You know, that's still a perfectly valid artistic visual statement as far as I'm concerned. That is next week's episode on this show, Warrior's Gate. And I, I'm hoping against hope that my next guest next week likes Warrior's Gate as much as you and I do. Well, you know, there's the extended novelization is coming out this summer, and I'm looking forward to that very much. I had the pleasure of picking that up on audio I think it was the summer before the pandemic. I spent a good several days listening to that. But as I listened to it, I had my paper novelization out and I was comparing what scenes changed and what minor words were changed and what order of scenes and new concepts. So next week, we're only talking about the original novelization, uh, the one published in 1982. We will come back and talk about the new version, which is in fact the old version, which didn't get accepted by JNT. We'll talk about that on a much later episode of Doctor Who Literature, but I think it's great that we have two different versions of the same story that you can put on the same shelf and compare the two. Yeah, it and it's a, it's a one-off Warrior's Gate. There's something very, very special about it, and I, not only for me personally, because it was like being allowed to watch Doctor Who again after having been made to watch something with some stupid robot and some bird in it on another channel, you know, it was, you know, what a, what a re-entry into the world of Doctor Who. That's a, that's a special story. All right. What are your favorite and least favorite stories out of season 18? I think for season 18, State of Decay is probably my least favorite. To be honest, wow. I mean, it's a, it's a strong bunch, but um, yeah, I mean, we've got Logopolis at the top there and Keeper of Traken, but uh, yeah, it's, it's just, to me, it's a little bit too weak, theatrical, old-fashioned compared to a lot of the really bright new ideas that you get in all of the other stories. See, now I know how Fraser feels when I crack on the Dominators because I can't believe that you just came on my show and said that you like Megalos better than State of Decay. That's a take I never thought I was going to hear. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are, there's not much to choose between them, to be honest with you. I mean, I like... Tom Baker covered in spines, you know, the poor Arthur Dent style character who gets kidnapped so that Megloss can take human form. I mean, Jacqueline Hill. That's a good point. Having her back was wonderful, even if she's playing the wrong character. I mean, yeah, there is there is more to like in Megloss, I think, at the end of the day than there is in State of Decay for me. Well, you have challenged me by coming in here and saying nice things about Meglo, so I think it is my turn now to challenge you. Are you ready for a round of 20 questions? Um, all right, but please be gentle with me. I haven't been well, you know. 
<laughs> I have been good to all of my 20 questions guests, and nobody has failed yet, even the one person uh, who didn't quite get there and needed a little bit of a foot on the scale to make it appear as if he won in post-production. And I won't say who he is, but his name rhymes with Bill Evenson. So I have picked one Doctor Who story from the archives. It is any story between 1963 and 2022, with the possible exception of Power of the Doctor, because I am not sure if the randomizer.net is yet updated for that story. But we can assume it's anything else between 1963 and the present. I am one of those stories. You have 20 yes or no questions to guess who I am. Okay. Are you from the 21st century? No, I am not from the 21st century. Both me literally and both me the story that I am playing. <laughs> Are you from the 1970s? I am, well, again, I personally am from the 1970s, but for the purpose of 20 questions, no, I am not from the 1970s. Are you from the 1980s? Yes, I am most definitely from the 1980s. Does your doctor have straight hair? That's a bit tough. That's not exactly something that I can answer yes or no, but it's definitely not curly, so I'll say yes, I have non-curly hair. Do you have blondish, fairish hair? No, I do not have blondish, fairish hair. Both me, myself, a brunette, and me, the person that I am right now. We do not have blondish hair. Okay. Um, do you have a ginger companion? This is question six. And for the purpose of the random story that I have selected, no, my companion is not a ginger. Question seven. <laughs> okay. I'm taking my coat off. Things are getting serious now. Um. <laughs> well, you've narrowed it down, I think, two seasons of the show, and there are fewer stories in those two seasons than the questions you have remaining. <laughs> so you are guaranteed to get it, although you're not going to get the all-time high score record, but I think you're in very good shape here. You could say that I've been very gentle on you. Yes, I think you probably have. Okay, so. Are you set on Earth? I am set on Earth. That's question eight. It's a yes. And I've been more gentle on you than you've been on poor state of decay. <laughs> question nine. <laughs> okay. Um, are you set in the 1980s? No, I am not set in the 1980s. Okay. Are you set in the 20th century? Yes, I am, question 10, set in the 20th century, albeit not in the 1980s. Now we're mm. on the back half of the questioning, question 11. Okay. Are you then... Hmm. <laughs> if you look at the episode guide for the two seasons that I can be from, I think there's only one choice left. I think there is, but I always get my revelations and resurrections mixed up. <laughs> um, so, yes, is it Resurrection of the Daleks? 
No, I am not Resurrection of the Daleks, no. which features a gingerish companion and is set in the 1980s. So that would not be mm. that would not be accurate. I think question 12 yeah. we're up to. Yes. Um Oh, I'm, it's late at night, sorry. <laughs> the name just escapes me. Can, can I pause and cheat in production? <laughs> but I am having a complete mental block on the name of this, of this story. It's ridiculous, isn't it? To call myself a fan. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we're talking about a Sylvester McCoy, Sophie Aldred story. Set in the set in twentieth um, century, but not in the nineteen eighties. So, so yeah. Um, resurrection, revelation of the Daleks. I don't know. It was remembrance is the word that you're looking for. I'll give you that. Remembrance. One. Yes. Yeah. But it is not remembrance. It is not remembrance, so it is a Sylvester Sophie story set in the 80s, set, set elsewhere on Earth other than the 1980s, but it is not remembrance set in the 60s. Aha, uh -huh. yeah. That would be Curse of Fenric then. Is that it? Ding, ding, ding. I am Curse of Fenric. You got it in under 15 questions. I think you got it in 12, so that works very, very well. See, that wasn't so bad. Well, it was. I mean, I was really having to wrap my brains. I mean, it's not so long since I watched the Sylvester McCoy's, well, I suppose it is a few years ago now, actually. Just trying to think. Probably pre-pandemic. I think what tripped you up was the resurrection versus revelation versus remembrance, the R of the Daleks. Yeah, that, that gets me every single time. And I'm a bad fan. I should know this stuff. I will go away and have it tattooed on my flesh so that I never forget again. I will write a poem about which one is which so that I know in future. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jason. I've let you down. I've let the podcasting world down. I've let... <laughs> well, you, 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 you won the game. You, you won the game. You didn't require the extra help of that other panelist whose name shall not be mentioned, but it rhymes with Bill Evenson. You do not need to go as far as to get a tattoo, which I do not recommend. But I think if you have your episode guide handy and remember your R of the Daleks, you did very, very well. Yeah. but um... So, Denise, where else can we find you and what other projects do you have that you might want to promote? Anyway, yes. So you can find me. I am at Cup of Tea 69 on Twitter. I am at... Denisery at Toot Community on Mastodon. Um, I have a blog. There's a link to that on my Twitter bio. Um, at the moment, I'm occasionally appearing on podcasts, but I'm having a few health issues at the moment, so I'm trying to preserve my energy a little bit, trying to do a little bit of writing when I can, chuck out a new poem now and again. And keep working and paying the bills, really. But hopefully, I'll start to get better soon. So, uh, so yeah, that's me. Underachiever compared to you. <laughs> well, we certainly wish you. We. <laughs> we certainly wish you all the best. You did a fine job today. I look forward to your next appearance, and of course, we'll be on trap together.
trap one together very soon for our Jody Roundup. So, Denise, have a great night, and thanks again. Thank you very much for having me back, Jason. Take care now. Doctor Who and the State of Decay, written by Terence Dix, televised as State of Decay, teleplay by Terence Dix, televised in November and December 1980, published in January 1982, cover artist Andrew Skilleter. The Doctor, Romana and Canine, and a young stowaway called Adric are trapped in the alternative universe of eSpace. Seeking help, they land on an unknown planet and find a nightmare world where oppressed peasants toil for the lords who live in the tower and where all learning is forbidden, a society in a state of decay. What is the terrifying secret of the three who rule? What monstrous creature stirs beneath the tower, waking from its thousand-year sleep? The doctor discovers that the oldest and deadliest enemy of the Time Lords is about to spring into horrifying action. State of Decay is notable to me for two different reasons. One, it's the only time my parents ever really made fun of my Doctor Who book reading habit. I'd have been about 12, my father asked me if I didn't think the cover of the book was silly. Quite the opposite, I protested. It was one of my favorites. Vampire Bats, a pretty good depiction of Aukon, and a look at aging Tom Baker of the season 18 variety, with Gaunt Face and his final season winged collar look, although Andrew Skilleter wisely does not include the JNT-era collar question marks, which remain with the Doctor through the end of the classic series run. I think my father was reacting to the neon tube logo on the cover. In publication order, this is only the second Target book to have the cover. In this case, the logo is pink, outlined in red, and I think he probably objected to having a son who was reading books with pink covers, and I was worryingly slow to develop an interest in girls, at least at that age. The other thing that struck me, not right away, was the inside joke buried in the text. It's on page 29, and it reads like this. The doctor surveyed the extraordinary scene with delighted interest. Well, well, well. Quite a technocothica you've got here. Doctor, whispered Romana. What's a technocothica? Well, I think it means a museum of technology. On the other hand, I might have made it up. Let's say that again. On the other hand, I might have made it up. Exclamation point. It took me a couple of viewings of the TV episode to realize that this particular line from the book isn't on TV. No, the TV sounds more like this. Well, it's quite a technocothica you've got here. Doctor? Hmm? What's a technocothica? I don't know. I think it's some sort of museum. It was later that we learned about the bad blood between Terence and the season 18 script editor, one Christopher Hamilton Bidmead, and if the Broadway musical has taught us anything about people named Hamilton, it's that a good personal feud is never too far behind. The details are on the DVD release of the story, where Bidmead talks about how he updated Terence's script to make it more, well, season 18-y, with lots more technology. This is a colony ship story, our second one in a row if you include TV's full circle, the descendants of a wrecked spaceship, a thousand years later on, and still with only enough people to fill one small village, and be depicted by about 25 extras, if that. 
the colony ship story fits well in Bidmead's philosophy. He'd later write one himself, freelance, for season 21's Frontios. Of course, we know now that Terence's original version of the script, titled The Vampire Mutations, was supposed to air three years earlier during season 15, but had to be shelved when the BBC didn't want it seen as a parody of their own Louis Jordan starring adaptation of Dracula. Of course, you don't make fun of Terence Dix, and you don't accuse Terence Dix of parody. He merely replaced vampire mutations with Horror of Fang Rock, which, as we discussed back in episode 40, Horror of Fang Rock is Dracula. Set at the same time, as the 19th century becomes the 20th, and as technology starts to take over our lives, in England, they have both got characters called Harker, they both see the cast picked off one by one by a bloodthirsty shapeshifter, and our story is set on Fang Rock, for heaven's sake. So when Bidmead augmented Terence's story with tech, Terence not only protested, but he also got the last word, submitting a letter to DWM, taking issue with Bidmead's telling of the story on the DVD, and pointing out that episode director Peter Moffat preferred Terence's original ideas. I love both these writers, and I wish they wouldn't fight, but Terence was the one who novelized his own TV scripts, and he left in the Technocothica line, but added his own punctuation. On the other hand, I might have made it up. That is definitely a dig at Bidmead. I'll note that Bidmead later proposed a story called Pinacothica, that is a real word by the way, for the Trial of a Time Lord season, which did not get picked up, and was replaced by Terror of the Vervoids instead, and therein hangs a tale, which we'll happily get to at a later date. So there's a lot of backstory to the state of decay novelization. Feuding geniuses, echoes of Dracula, and telling a story that horror of Fang Rock had already done, and done superbly well. Now, for my money, State of Decay is just about as good as Fang Rock. You can credit Peter Moffat's direction if you like, or Peter Howell's score. Terence's script while not as dense with sharp, rapid-fire dialogue and fascinatingly self-destructive characters as the Lighthouse story, more than satisfies my classic Doctor Who needs. This is the first novelization of the JNT era, and the first novelization to feature Adric. Now that we're done reminiscing, let's get to the point. This is a 119-page book, starts on page 7, ends on page 125. One could be forgiven for thinking, but most of what's great about the book is the TV material, rather than, than any inventive Terence additions to the story. After all, there's no prologue, as we'd gotten earlier with strong Terence adaptations like Pyramids of Mars or Horns of Nymon. There are no extra-slash-deleted scenes, like we'll later get with Keeper of Trocken. But no, as always, if you ignore the transcribed dialogue and stage directions, and look at the marginalia, the brief asides, and character POVs, and sardonic bursts of observational humor, you'll see that Terence adds nearly as much to the print as Peters Moffat and Howell did to the TV serial. Terence gives a nice hint right on page 1, or if you will, page 7, that this is a vampire tale. There were lights in the tower, too. Those who dwelt there kept late hours, and were seldom seen in daylight. Habris, the vampire's guard captain on page 8, walks with, quote, reluctant haste, which is a lovely description, easy to overlook. 
Terence uses Habris's POV again to tease what we're up against, also on page 8. It wasn't so much any quality they possessed, thought Habris. It was something they lacked. There was a sense of something remote and alien about them. It was the way they looked at you, as if you were a member of some different inferior species whose concerns were of no real interest to them. It was as though they weren't quite human. Page 11 also narrates exactly why Habris breaks with tradition and selects Ivo's son Carl to give to the bloodthirsty lords, in a long paragraph that adds quite a bit to what we already knew from the TV serial going in. Terence makes clear right away that Carl is Ivo's son, increases the meager village population, and has Habris hold out the false hope that Carl might be chosen as a guard rather than as... Uh, dinner? The prose goes by very fast. Chapter 2 is written at about the same sophistication level as Terence's later 1994 new adventure, part sequel to the story Blood Harvest, which was recently debated on an episode of We're All Stories in the End, to which I may have submitted a small contribution. But Terence constantly includes brief editorial sentences that engage the interest. There's a prose description of the e-space cycle, which is important because the e-space trilogy is being novelized inside out, with the middle story being novelized first, the finale being novelized next month, and the intro story not coming out until about six months later. Romana is infuriated when the Doctor speaks of the TARDIS as if it were a living creature. The Doctor is infuriatingly cheerful. Canine is characterized by adverb, such that he speaks, quote, importantly, or discouragingly. Similar to text early on in the Fang Rock book, Terence joins Habers and Ivo in the middle of, quote, an old argument between them, never resolved. Terence's introduction of Adric in Chapter 3 is disappointingly bare-bones, no mention at all of Full Circle, and deleting the one line of dialogue shown on TV, suggesting that Adric already knew the difference between E-Space and N-Space, which he learned in Full Circle, which, of course, book readers won't get in print for another six months. Better is a quick dip into the Doctor's head when captured by Kalmar's men at the top of page 26. As always... The Doctor's overriding feeling was one of curiosity. Here was yet another aspect of life on this strange planet, and he wanted to know more about it. Page 27 is a brief allusion to the Todd Browning 1931 Dracula. Alcon's bats are thought of by Habris as winged messengers of the night, but not children of the night. What music they make. For Chapter 4, Adric gets to drive POV for three pages, 33 through 35 for those of you reading along at home, it's clear Terence is still working from whatever meager character brief he was given, slotting Adric into an old script for the very first story Matthew Waterhouse filmed. That brief is The Artful Dodger, and not who Adric was by the time this book came out. Though, of course, by the time the book came out, Adric was not much longer for the world. There's no badge for mathematical excellence. This sequence is solely about Adric conniving for food, playing at being a starving orphan which has at least the benefit of being a half-truth. The Doctor, meanwhile, as observed by Romana, would be kept happy for years by the technological junk in Kalmar's hideout, if he didn't insist on repairing all of it. On page 38, Tarak laments, the lament of every antagonist who's ever lost control of his captive, when that captive is the Doctor. Belatedly, Tarak remembered that the Doctor and Romana were supposed to be prisoners under interrogation, Somehow it seemed that they had been asking all the questions. 
Terrence also adds an explanation, not given on TV, as to how the abandoned food used by the rebels managed to survive its having been jettisoned from the ship a thousand years earlier. Part 1 ends with the end of Chapter 4. In the book, Romana helpfully screams and sprains her ankle, which doesn't match up with Lyle Ward's TV performance. For the Part 1 material, Terrence also removes both references to The Wasting, one of the episode's working titles. Those deletions are not really missed, as the idea of what The Wasting is was never developed over Parts 2, 3, or 4 on TV. Page 41 gets confusing, for those of you who read these books closely, and I'm afraid I fall into that category. The twilight recedes, and the castle walls bask in the late afternoon sun. I know I'm recording this the day that daylight savings time begins and we lose an hour, so the time is out of joint, but I'm not quite sure how late afternoon sun follows twilight. And Ramana's ankle is turned, rather than twisted. What? Ramana on page 42 guesses that the tower throne room was designed for some other purpose, which is Terence signposting what's going to happen next. Now I can forgive clumsy foreshadowing and twisted metaphors, or maybe I should say turned metaphors, when Terence on page 43 likens Lord Zargo and Lady Camilla to the kings and queens on decks of playing cards. That's a line of the book that stayed with me for nearly four full decades. Also, Romana's observation that when the doctor started, quote, babbling nonsensically, it was a sign he was very worried. There's a nice detail that the meat served at this feast is practically raw, but the signposting in the book does seem a little obvious for Terence, Adric observing that Alcon's eyes, quote, positively radiated power. There are probably ways for characters to have these revelations while still allowing the reader a little more space to think for themselves. Zargo in Chapter 5 also acknowledges that he comes from Earth, which he doesn't say directly on TV. But the good news for the novelization is that it retains Terence's TV dialogue, and I think we can all agree that the conversation between the Doctor and Romana and Zargo and Camilla on television is probably one of Terence's finest moments. Let's give a listen. Surely you realize something here must be wrong. Wrong? Yes. What is, is. Oh, what is, is wrong. Look, society is developing in varying ways. Yours just seems to be sinking back into some sort of primitivism. Wouldn't you say so? Oh, yes. Yeah. In terms of applied socio-energetics, it's losing its grip on level two development. On level two? A society that evolves backwards must be subject to some even more powerful force restraining it. An even more powerful force? How very mysterious. Well, mysterious or not, those rebels seem to think the power emanates from you. They flatter us. In any society, there is bound to be a division, the rulers and the ruled. A division? <laughs> Yawning chasm, I'd say, wouldn't you? No, I'd say a sociopathetic abscess. Oh, I wish I'd thought of that. That's a good diagnosis. Yes, I've never seen such a state of decay. Be careful, Doctor. We have acquired great powers. Ah, there must be rulers. A ship of state must have a pilot. What did you say? The first line of chapter 6 is probably one of my top 10 Terrence sentences. Not that I've been keeping a list over the life of this podcast, though I clearly should have been. Quote, Their little chat with the Lord Zargo and Lady Camilla, thought Romana, was turning out to be one of the least successful social occasions of all time. On page 53, Terrence declares that it's, quote, suddenly clear that Camilla is the more powerful of the two. 
One thing I used to do as a tween who fan was to act out the novelizations episode by episode and time myself at my digital stopwatch. Yes, I had a digital watch at age 12, and yes, that made me exactly as uncool as you imagine. I was once home alone, acting out part two of State of Decay. I reached the end of chapter six, where Zargo declares that the Doctor and Romana must be killed, and realized that I was seriously underrunning if I wanted to hit 25 minutes in length. So I added a few minutes worth of imaginary, circular dialogue, with Zargo changing his mind twice, and ending up back in the exact same place, thereby accidentally discovering the same capture-escape-capture loops that Terence and Malcolm Hulk had used when they had to move the war games from a six-part story to a ten-parter several years earlier. Of course, the book is even longer than the TV spin that I was augmenting, and on TV, Vargo doesn't even make a declaration about killing the Doctor and Romana in the first place. Luckily for you guys, I did not audio record my long-ago performance. Now, I did once record myself reading out the regeneration sequence from the Caves of Androzani novelization, true story, but that audio tape is long, long gone. Again, consider yourself lucky. Page 62, quote, Not for the first time, Romana thought that the Doctor's insatiable curiosity would be the death of him, and probably of her as well. It would have been interesting, for a book that came out after Logopolis had already aired, for this line to be not just a random character insight, but also a direct reference to Logopolis. But alas, that would not be the case. Unlike the new adventures of late 1996 and early 1997, which had plenty of time to build up to the Seventh Doctor's eventual death. Chapter 7, meanwhile, ends not on the original cliffhanger, the revelation that the Hydrax's fuel tanks are full of blood, but rather ends on the post-production cliffhanger of Akon revealing himself. Terence also missed a backwards nod in one of his first books by not calling the following chapter The Terror of Akon. Instead, it's called The Resting Place, which is not a great punk band name. Page 69. So this is Akon, thought the Doctor, third member of the Unholy Triumvirate, the three who rule. Or perhaps the first. For all his simple dress and unassuming manner, it was clear that Akon was a man to be reckoned with. His whole manner was one of massive confidence, and of a kind of holy exaltation. Akon was a fanatic, far more dangerous than the petulant Zargo, or the icy Camilla. This is again perhaps Terence telling us what to think, but they are apt descriptors. Emerus James gave terrifically intense work as Akon, his acting at the part two cliffhanger all the more remarkable because it wasn't scripted as a cliffhanger moment. These two Terence paragraphs on page 69 help us understand why that moment was repurposed and elevated in post-production. Where are we, Doctor? You are in the resting place. Where? The resting place. I am Orkham. Welcome to my domain. Also great is the next sentence which builds into Romana's early observation about the Doctor's, quote, babbling nonsensically when worried. Here she tells us the Doctor covers up his worry by playing the fool. It also helps to have James's performance in mind to elevate his words on the printed page, then to marvel at the acting choices James made as the episode's principal bad guy. 
comparing the rest of chapter 8 to the TV text. There's a couple of lines here that were not on TV. The doctor calling Adric an idiot stowaway. And then the line from the cold open to this podcast episode about looking at the universe poetically rather than scientifically. Chapter 9 features some of Kalmar's greatest hits. Terence clearly loved writing for this character and brought him back for his 1994 Blood Harvest, the one which was in part a sequel to this story, although Kalmar doesn't fare quite so well in the N.A. Here we get lines on pages 81 and 82, like Kalmar pronouncing the technical word facility with pride, or being, quote, far more excited about his ability to spot the approaching newcomer than by any possible danger the stranger might represent. Adorable. Chapter 9 is otherwise a little different from the TV. Ivo in the book gets more dialogue and more flavor, urging Kalmar to attack the tower, and the doctor making another snide reference to Adric being a stowaway. Terence doesn't seem to like Adric very much, does he? The bottom of page 89, when I was a tween, was gosh darn it the funniest thing I'd ever read. This passage caused me to laugh out loud uncontrollably. Here's my best efforts at it now, as I'm pushing 50. What about vampires? demanded the doctor. Did you try vampires? Information on vampires, totally absent from TARDIS databanks. The doctor's face fell, and K-9 went on consolingly. However, the folklore section of my databanks contains vampire legends from 17 inhabited planets. I will begin with your favorite planet, Earth. The legend of Count Dracula? The doctor shuddered. No, thank you. Not Count Dracula. Try emergency instructions as a general category. There are 18,348 emergency instructions, said K-9 obligingly. I will now list them in order of coding. No! yelled the doctor. No! 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 Man, Terence, as much as he doesn't seem to like Adric, really has K-9 down. This was the only full canine story that he scripted for television. Page 91, which introduces the notion of bow ships and mighty bolts of steel, became very important to the N.A. extensions of Time Lord mythology in the 1990s. Not just the bits of Terence's own blood harvest set on Gallifrey, but also in So Vile a Sin. I'm not sure if that passage was by Ben Aronovich or Kate Orman, but so vile a sin actually goes inside a bow ship, and we see an enormous vampire skeleton. On page 93, I like the comparison of a sleeping Zargo and Camilla to, quote, statues on the tomb of some ancient king and queen. But Terence also has the vampire's breathing, which seems wrong. Romana's line about being Camilla's blood group separator is not in the book. That sounds like a Lala Ward ad-lib. Page 97. Such was the authority in his voice that despite their ferocious hunger for blood, the vampires check their attack. I love it when the doctor wields authority like this. Except this time it isn't the doctor, it's Akon. So this chapter, chapter 11, titled The Traitor, again should be called Terror of the Akon. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. On page 98, Terence makes fun of, fun of the script, noticing that Veros, a character who barely registers in parts 1 through 3, quote, seem to have become far more militant, which is interesting because Veros is Terence's own character. On page 101, Terence, like Tom Baker himself, who loves to drop in Shakespearean illusion, goes to town with the St. Crispin's Day speech. I know there are many difficulties, admitted the doctor, lack of energy weapons, no real battle experience, 
almost insurmountable odds, the rebels started looking downcast, and the doctor decided they needed a bit of inspiration. Borrowing freely from his favorite Earth poet, he went on, But he who outlives this day and comes safe home shall stay at a tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of E-Space. The rebels gave a ragged cheer. The doctor beamed and made a mental note that someday he must pop back to Elizabethan London and tell young Will how well his speech had gone down. Well, that's the problem, gentlemen, and there's got to be an answer. But what? asked Kalmar dubiously. That is the question, said the doctor solemnly, borrowing from Shakespeare again. Page 111 contains the transcript of one of the strongest lines of dialogue Terence ever wrote. People have tended to underestimate him over the years because he wrote so many simple-looking novelizations. Of course, long-time listeners of Doctor Who literature know that the truth behind his books is so much more complex than that. And lines of dialogue like this are killer. The guards must hold the tower to the last man. We are outnumbered. Unless you aid us, we shall all be killed. Then die. That is the purpose of gods. Go. Terence also mocks the doctor for choosing the wrong ladder when trying to figure out which of the three scout ships to turn into a mighty bolt of steel. Quote, the doctor pointed to the left, changed his mind, and dashed up the right-hand ladder. It was a bad decision. Chapter 12 also expands the scene where Ivo kills Habris. Terence has never been sentimental about killing off his supporting characters, and it's hard not to cheer for Ivo, even during this act of cold, blooded vengeance. A bit of visual poetry in the book occurs in chapter 13, mid-climax, page 117. And by the way, when I said page 11 a few minutes ago, I meant page 111. Thank you. Back to page 117. The side of the Hydrax making its final trip is narrated through the eyes of terrified villagers locked in their huts. Quote, The villagers who had refused to join Ivo's rebel band were all locked into their huts, doors barred and windows shuttered, hoping that the terrifying events of the night would pass them by. This was unfortunate because if any of them had been bold enough to be out and about on this extraordinary night, they would have seen a truly amazing sight. The tower which had dominated their village for so long was changing shape. One of the triple turrets that were the tower's most remarkable feature was rising slowly, in the air on a pillar of flame. One of the Hydrax's three arrow-class scout ships was making its first trip for a very long time. The death of the three who rule is told in much quicker fashion, though there is a nice sequence about there, having turned into, quote, gorgeously robed skeletons as they decay quickly. Chapter 14 is the epilogue, and this is expanded from the TV text, Adric getting to protest more about wanting to see the universe, and the Doctor observing that he would have a hard time picturing Kalmar piloting a spaceship. But Terence gives Kalmar the literal last word. Page 125. There was a wheezing, groaning sound on the Rebel HQ, and the TARDIS faded away. Kalmar watched it go a little sadly. A pleasant fellow, that doctor. Perhaps a little too erratic for a real scientist, though. Kalmar returned to work. Next time on Doctor Who Literature, we reach the end of the E-Space trilogy, which is odd because, as I said earlier, 
when you're talking about the target novelizations, the first story in the trilogy has not even been novelized yet and would not be out for another six months or so. So next week, me and a returning guest are going to talk about a very lyrical, allegorical, poetic, visually striking, prohibitively expensive, and at the time, very confusing episode of Doctor Who. It quotes the I Ching. It says things that we are still debating in fandom. There are three gateways, and the three gateways are one. It may be that no Gundam will outlive the day of the feast, but on Doctor Who literature, next week is going to be a verbal feast indeed, as we enter Doctor Who and Warrior's Gate. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. Special thanks to my special guest, Denise Sutton. Isn't she lovely? This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at anchor.fm slash Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels. That's D-R Who Novels. My old tweets about the entire series under the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage. That's D-R Who Pilgrimage. My current Twilight Zone watch-through under hashtag TZ Pilgrimage. And on email at Doctor Who Literature. That's D-R Who Literature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening. And whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Doctor Who Podcast Network.